Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. This episode is part one of one of my favorite places to look for value, spin-offs. Keep in mind that this is not a book summary, and therefore, this episode is not a substitute for reading Joel Greenblatt's 1997 publication titled you can be a stock market genius. But I will selectively be using its content, especially chapter 3, as a framework to talk about the subject. I think even to this day, it remains the best reading on special situation investing. I'll also be adding in a few examples from more recent history. First off, what is a spin-off? In plain English, this is when a corporation separates a division or part of the business into its own publicly traded company. Shares of the new company are typically distributed to the parent company's existing shareholders. So it is really the opposite of a merger where a company becomes larger by acquiring another business. Instead, we are heading in the other direction, splitting up and thus getting smaller. It is also the opposite of a typical IPO or initial public offering. With most IPOs, the seller is selecting a favorable time to sell shares to the public and buyers of hot IPOs will climb over each other to obtain shares. With a plain vanilla spinoff, shares of the spun-off company are instead distributed to shareholders of the parent company regardless of whether they are wanted. And further, instead of competing to buy a limited offering, the opposite can happen with a spin-off in that shareholders head for the exits. And it often has nothing to do with the quality of the business. Why should we care about spin-offs? The answer is simple because there is profit to be made by having some skill in this area. And there are studies pointing to outsized profits from spinoffs. Greenblatt refers to a study covering 25 years ending in 1988 that found spinoffs outperformed industry peers and the S&P 500 by about 10 percentage points per year in their first three years of independence. I can see there are more recent studies since the book was published. Purdue University revealed that spin-off shares achieved an excess return of more than 10 percentage points per year above the U.S. stock market return over 36 years, between 1965 and 2000. Researchers more recently extended the study up to 2013, and the results were the same. But on the most basic level, I believe the area of spin-offs is a wonderful hunting ground to discover quality businesses worth holding for the long term. And why is that? As long-term investors, We care about identifying the right businesses at the right prices. The act of spinning off has absolutely nothing to do with landing on the right business, but the dynamics involved in the transaction often help in landing on the right price, and that is not a bad place to start. Competition for spinoffs has increased since Greenblatt's book was released in the 1990s, which also happens to coincide with when the internet began to take off. And yet, mispricings still happen today in the spinoff world. Greenblatt opens the chapter on spin-offs with an example of an excellent restaurant. Everything on the menu is likely to be good. And the same goes for investing in that if you are looking in high-probability situations, or in other words choosing from an outstanding menu, it should increase the odds of success. Spin-offs you are definitely familiar with, but that you may not be aware were spun-off of another company, include Yum Brands. 
which owns Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell, that was spun off of Pepsi in 1997. Pepsi's price is up four times since then, while Yum Brands is up almost 18 times. Chipotle Mexican Grill, which spun off of McDonald's. McDonald's now trades at around six times what it did at the beginning of 2006 when the spin occurred, but Chipotle's price is now more than 26 times its starting price. And PayPal, spun off of eBay in July 2015. eBay's share price has almost doubled since then, and that's great, but PayPal's is trading about five and a half times higher than its starting price. I think it's important to note that spinoffs should not be thought of as a silver bullet. Yes, there have been stellar spinoff winners, but there are enough that don't work out that a blind love of them is dangerous. The way I've come to think about spinoffs is that they can present opportunities to buy bargains that are made available by structural forces surrounding spinoff transactions. And they happen frequently enough such that, once in a while, an idea that meets all our checklist items is available at the right price. Just as with any other stock investment, we are buying a fraction of the business, which means if you hold it long enough, your return should approximate the growth in the business's earnings power. So our assessment of the business should be no different than in any other situation. Why do companies decide to spin off? The first point is that a company may have unrelated businesses. By separating them, the thinking is that the market will better evaluate each. We saw this in March 2020 when United Technologies simultaneously spun off two companies, Otis Worldwide, an elevator company, and Carrier, a manufacturer and distributor of HVAC systems. Sometimes, the motivation for a spin-off comes from a desire to separate out a bad business so that an unfettered good business can show through to investors. In so doing, a dedicated management team for each entity means each has a better chance at success. Sometimes, a spin-off is a way to get value to shareholders for a business that can't be easily sold. If a buyer can't be found for a so-called bad business at a reasonable price, one way to extract value is to spin it off with debt, leaving the parent with less debt and thereby giving it more flexibility to pursue its goals. Tax considerations can also influence a decision to pursue a spin-off instead of an outright sale. Selling a division for cash and sending the proceeds to shareholders as a dividend would in most cases result in two taxable events. First, the corporation would be taxed on the gain and then the shareholder would be taxed on the dividend. A spin-off in most cases is a tax-free transaction, as in the distribution of spin-off shares is not a taxable event. Lastly, there are strategic reasons. For example, it could be that an acquirer had already expressed interest in buying out the company but didn't want one of the divisions or perhaps couldn't buy the unwanted division because of antitrust issues. Spinning off that business could solve the issue and pave the way to an acquisition. Now that we have covered a few key reasons why a parent might be motivated to spin off a division, next on the agenda is an exploration into why spin-offs tend to lead to good investment situations. As per Greenblatt, Spin-off profits are practically built into the system. The spin-off process itself is a fundamentally inefficient method of distributing stock to the wrong people. Let's think about that for a second. When a company is spun off, its shares are deposited into the brokerage accounts of shareholders who for the most part were investing in the parent company's business. Many shareholders will sell without regard to price or intrinsic value, thus driving down the price. And what would motivate one to sell? Well, much of this motivation to punt a spin-off comes from the institutional shareholders. 
Some funds, for example, can only own companies in the S&P 500, so if a company in that index spins off a division, the odds are pretty good that that newly spun off stock will come under significant selling pressure that has nothing to do with valuing a company. Another reason is that spun off companies are usually much smaller than the parent, often only 10% to 15% of the parent's market cap right out of the gate. What this almost ensures is that mutual funds with a mandate to own companies above a certain market capitalization will need to sell the spin-off. Again, nothing to do with the quality or valuation of the businesses. Next, entrepreneurial energy is often unleashed in spin-offs. This probably has to do with the increased accountability and more direct incentives that come along with being part of a smaller entity. For example, owning employee stock options on the spin-off rather than the much bigger parent company will likely make team members feel like their efforts are more tied to compensation. In the Penn State study, the largest gains for spin-off companies happened not in the first year, but in the second year. I have found this to be generally true. It could be that it takes a year for the selling pressure to wear off, but more likely I found that it takes time for the new entity, even though it isn't really new, to gain operating momentum. Usually from time of an initial announcement of the spin, several months are required to get the spin-off company in a position for the transaction. This takes a lot of management time and is likely a big corporate distraction. Another of Greenblatt's thoughts on why spin-offs tend to be successful is the underlying intentions behind them. Most CEOs will strive to expand their empire or sphere of influence. There are numerous studies showing a relationship between a company's revenues and CEO pay, and often this means making many acquisitions outside of the company's existing business. So the motives behind the expansion may not be in line with the shareholders in the first place. With a spin-off, we have the polar opposite. The parent company is going to great lengths to shrink itself, and the management teams will have less influence. But the intentions are good for shareholders because it means each company will have increased focus. This brings us to a case study, Host Marriott versus Marriott International. The spin-off of Host Marriott from Marriott International is a situation that worked out very well for Greenblatt's hedge fund, nearly tripling within four months of the spin-off in September 1993. Yes, this is a dated example, but it is still a good case study. So during the 1980s, Marriott Corporation built a lot of hotels, but owning hotels wasn't the company's key business. Instead, it charged management fees for franchising and managing hotels owned by third parties. Its strategy was to build hotels, then sell them, but keep the management contracts for those hotels. When the real estate market crashed in the early 1990s, Marriott's situation suddenly changed. It now had a bunch of hotels it couldn't sell, the market was overbuilt, and now Marriott was stuck with a lot of debt that was incurred to build those hotels. A financial wizard named Stephen Ballenbach was tasked to help dig Marriott out of this rut. He engineered the spin-off so that Marriott International would have a clean balance sheet and the lucrative management fees, while the debt would be dumped into the entity that owned the unsaleable hotels. This toxic-sounding, over-leveraged company would be called Host Marriott. Greenblatt pointed out certain characteristics he saw in the whole Marriott situation that he looks for when trying to identify outstanding spin-off opportunities. 1. Institutions don't want it for reasons other than investment merits. 
First, the media framed host Marriott in a way that made it look toxic. And this was before all the info and disclosure was released. Few institutions would even consider host as an investment, let alone do the work in researching the company. Next to size, Host was likely going to account for only 10-15% to 15% of the $2 billion entity, Myriad Corporation, that was being broken up. The remainder of the value would be going to Marriott International. So if you were a mutual fund manager who bought Marriott Corporation for clients of a mid-cap fund, suddenly, after the spinoff, you end up with a tiny position in Host, a small cap name that clearly doesn't fit the fund's mandate. Next, Host was in a different business than its parent company. Again, one owned the bricks and mortar buildings along with a lot of debt, while the other one, instead of owning properties, received fees for management and franchising of the properties. Most investors would have bought Myriad Corporation shares to gain exposure to the management fees and not to the real estate. 2. Insiders Want Shares Insider participation is an important area to look at when evaluating spin-offs, and Greenblatt wrote that it was the most important area for him. How will the management team be incentivized? Will they be aligned with the shareholders through compensation in stock, restricted stock, or options? Is there a plan for them to buy more? With Host, the Marriott family was still going to own 25% of the company after the spin-off, and Stephen Ballenbach was to jump over and become CEO. With so much ownership, it was in the family's best interest to have the stock do well. 3. A previously hidden investment opportunity is created or revealed. A spin-off can make a pure play out of a great business or separate it from a combination of not-so-great businesses. Host would have been grouped into the not-great-business category and on top of that had ample debt thrown onto it. What that meant was that out of the gate, Host had tremendous leverage. Based on brokerage analysts quoted in press reports, Host stock could trade as high as $5 per share, and the debt per share could be as high as $25. That would make $30 of assets for the whole company. So a 15% increase in the market's appraisal of Host's assets could mean almost doubling the stock. 15% of $30 is $4.50. Now, a 15% move the other way would therefore almost wipe out the equity value. The example just given was a case study that worked out well in a timely manner, but if there's anything I have to add here, it is to pay attention to Greenblatt's point that spinoffs tend to perform best after one year of being spun off. Anecdotally, that's certainly been my experience. And so if it does require so much time to see the results then that implies that our investment outcome becomes more tethered to the fundamentals of the company. And I think that point is worth emphasizing because if we become too excited about the dynamics of a spin-off and overlook analyzing the quality of the business, we can get into trouble if, say, we buy a spin-off and then the forced selling or neglect by the market goes on longer than we expect. And then on top of that, the company starts printing bad financial results. That can result in permanent loss. In other words, Unless we are that short-term as investors, we have to temper enthusiasm here with our typical due diligence into whether we want to be multi-year owners of the company. All right, we're back. I read uh, half of this chapter, and I have to say it's a lot less technical. It's more, it's less like a textbook. It was an easier read, so 
if anyone's going to start reading investment books, this one would be a good one to start with. So after listening to your monologue, I my one question, main question is, how can one find spin-off ideas? I would say there are two basic approaches. One is passive reading of new sources, and the other is using search methods to routinely keep on top of what spin-offs are in the pipeline. So just reading the business news, you will see mention of spin-offs, especially when the parent company first decides to go down the path and makes the initial announcement which is normally 7 to 12 months ahead of the actual date that the spin-off company begins trading on its own. Chances are most people will gloss over spin-off announcements without noticing, but just like anything you begin to look out for, you begin to notice. But that leaves it up to chance in a way because, say, if you're on vacation and depend on seeing it in the news to be informed, then you can miss ideas. But do you need to know about spin-offs far ahead of time? Where it matters to know ahead of time is if you want to do prep work ahead of the spin. And where I think it makes sense to start to do work ahead of time is if you want to be ready in case shares start trading cheap. And one situation in particular that could lead to that is if there is a big size difference between the parent company and the spinoff. Either that or it's a great business and you already have a good understanding of it and therefore you just want to be ready to pick off a position if the price is right. During the several months required for the parent company to complete the spin, disclosures will come out from the company. Okay, so what kind of disclosures? What do you mean? For a plain vanilla spinoff, at least in the U.S., companies will file a document called a Form 10. It contains all sorts of useful information like why the transaction is being done, the company strategy, risk factors, and the company will file a few iterations in the months leading up to the spin. The final version will provide what are called pro forma financials, meaning financial statements of the to-be-spun company that portray how the balance sheet, which is a statement of what a company owns and owes, would look like based on the debt to be placed into the company by the parent and also the cash position if any is injected into the spin-off by the parent. And a pro forma profit loss statement will also be provided which shows how the profitability of the new company would have looked in the past year if it carried the debt to be put into it. And it should also account for what are called disenergies, meaning the extra costs that would need to be sustained to be a standalone company. You know, costs like IT, certain personnel, or the cost of paying a separate board of directors. These are expenses that the spin-off company would have previously shared with the parent company. Well, on top of that, uh, at the discretion of the company, you may see what are I call user-friendly disclosures like PowerPoint decks and even a quasi-investor day or webcast ahead of the initial trading to help inform analysts and investors about the company. Okay, so are there any other sources that one can use to find out about spinoffs? Finding out about upcoming spinoffs through news is rather random and passive. So if you want it to be more thorough, you can actually search by form type on the SEC website. So again, that is only for U.S. companies, but you can pull all documents of a certain form for the past five years within the free search tool. So for spinoffs, you'd want to check off the type called a form 10-12B, and you will see a little pipeline of upcoming or recently completed spinoffs. Are there any other free ways to learn about spinoffs? 
Well, you can also use Google Alerts.、Uh, it is a free app, and it will send you an email if the combination of words you pre-specify appear in the media. For the past seven years, I've had daily emails land in my inbox, and the odd time I will get wind of an upcoming spin like that. So, anytime Google detects the words. Say spinoff or demerger. I will receive an email summing up all the appearances of those words in the media during a given day. The only thing is, more than half of the results will be rumors of which TV series will have a spinoff. Now, I've browsed through countless mentions of which spinoff series may be possible for The Walking Dead and Star Wars.、Mm-hmm. If you work for a financial institution, chances are you have access to a Bloomberg terminal and can therefore search by corporate action type there. Bloomberg is a powerful tool that can inform you of most spinoffs happening worldwide, though it is definitely not free and probably not accessible to the layman. Now, for me, I tend to find out naturally just through following the news flow of the companies and management teams I admire. If you go to the investor relations site of almost any company, you can sign up to be on the distribution list. And since spinoffs take several months to execute, you can then follow the news directly from the companies themselves, leading up to and after the spinoff. And you should be able to pull off the Form 10 or S1 directly from the investor relations part of the parent company's website. Okay, so what about timing? How do you time the purchase of a spinoff? I think timing is always a tough thing. If you were already familiar with the business being spun off because you owned the parent company, or you just did a lot of work preparing in anticipation that the spinoff would be neglected and therefore cheap near the start of trading, and it does turn out to be cheap on an absolute basis, that might be a basis to start a position. But you said that spinoffs tend to work best in their second year. I would say it's similar to going shopping, and you see an item on sale, say for thirty percent off regular price. Even if you had reason to believe that the discount could increase in the future, I mean, ultimately we don't know if that will be the case. But we do know that we can buy it now for thirty percent off, and that is inherently a good deal. Now the same goes for investing in a spinoff or any other scenario. At the end of the day, if the stock trades. At any time, way under what you think it's worth, based on your due diligence, and more so than most of your other existing ideas, a buy decision can make a lot of sense. The truth is that, despite whatever any study says about when spinoffs tend to perform best for any individual idea, we don't know how long the motivated selling lasts, or whether some big-time buyers push the price up before expected. There is no right answer about how to build a position in a spin or when to do it. The only recommendation I'd make is to just line it up against all other ideas and be as unemotional about it as possible. So then, how do you deal with the fact that spins price may continue to be under pressure for a while, even if you bought it for a cheap price? I don't think there's a perfect solution, and that's why it's important to be especially patient. But that can be said again of any investing situation. Now, assuming an investor is always considering many different ideas, there are naturally many valuations off which to compare how compelling a given idea is. One compromise could be to buy maybe half or a quarter of what you consider to be a, a full position, thereby leaving room to buy more later. I would say that would make sense, but it should depend just how cheap it is in the here and now, and also compared to with your other ideas. It seems like this would take so much patience that it's not possible for most people. Besides the key reasons cited in Greenblatt's book,、uh, like motivated selling by new owners who don't own the stock, and 
the fact that it tends to take time for the new entity to get into its own operating groove. I have also noticed that sometimes the investor relations function takes a while to get going. For example, I have seen many times that the spin-off company doesn't have quarterly conference calls for the first few years or releases minimal information before the spin takes place. A lack of info at the start may seem like a turnoff, but sometimes this happens with quality companies and actually it may lead to more opportunity for your research to pay off. So yes, in answer to your question, I would say that it just does take a lot of patience and if you don't have it, then it's definitely not the place for you. Okay, can you give me a more recent example of a spinoff that would be a good case study? An example that is more fresh in my memory because I do own it is Trishura Group, which I mentioned briefly at the end of episode one. Trishura is a specialty insurer that spun off of Brookfield Asset Management in 2017. Now, I think this is a good example because those attributes mentioned earlier were so pronounced and visible before and after the transaction. What are the reasons why the stock could have been overlooked at first? Greenblatt said to look for cases where the spin-off company is 10% to 15% of the parent company's value or size. Well, Trishura was likely going to account for less than 1% of the value of Brookfield, the parent company. For every 170 shares of Brookfield, shareholders would be distributed just one share of Trishura. That means that at the start, we have a company with only 5.8 million shares outstanding and um, a market cap starting at around $130 million in Canadian dollars. So actually, this was an extreme case in that the starting market cap was about 0.25% of the parent company. Yeah, that's right, uh, a quarter of a percent of the parent company's market cap. What this almost guaranteed, although it wasn't intentional, was that by default, a mutual fund manager who bought Brookfield for clients of a large cap mutual fund would sell the spinoff shares in the open market upon receipt or sometime afterward. I could almost put myself in the shoes of a fund manager walking into work one day and seeing that I had a few crumbs of this new company. The rough math is that if Trishura started at one quarter of 1%, of Brookfield's value, this would mean that if Brookfield were a 6% position in a mutual fund, Trishura would have appeared as less than 0.02% of the fund. Do you want to do the analysis on the company to see if it is worth holding on to a 0.02% position, which is two basis points, or just sell it? Chances are, if you're a fund manager, you have enough on your plate. And then on top of that, Is this a mutual fund that by design is supposed to hold large cap or blue check companies? If so, you would 100% have to punt the stock. Another reason why Treasurer was perhaps overlooked was that it is in a different business than its parent company. So if you bought Brookfield, there is no way you bought it because you intended to have exposure to Trishura's specialty insurance business. Brookfield gives you this hodgepodge exposure to a large asset management firm, real hard assets like property, infrastructure, renewable power, and lastly, private equity. And this could have contributed to the stock being orphaned at the start. Was this a situation where insiders wanted the shares? At the time of the spin, a public company called Partners Value Investments owned about 10% of the stock. Partners Value is really a vehicle that allows Brookfield executives to own Brookfield asset management stock in a leveraged manner, and it also owns a few other investments, Trishura being one of them. I noticed in the public filings that Partners consistently bought more stock on the open market after the spin took place, almost doubling its ownership in a year after the spinoff. 
At the time, David Clear also bought a lot of shares on the open market. Now, this was mid-2018, I think. And he wasn't CEO yet at the time, but would soon be promoted to that position. Would you say Treasure was a hidden investment opportunity that was revealed after spinning off? Not really. Uh, and when I say that, I mean all the information was very public. One could see from the information in the initial prospectus that this was a high-quality company. Now, usually a PNC insurer, that's a property and casualty insurer, it makes a trade-off between being profitable on policies underwritten and gaining market share. In this case, one could see the company had already recorded a consistent track record of double-digit growth while achieving above-average profitability. And it took me a good year after the spinoff before I finally bought a position. So by then, a few quarters of earnings had gone by where I could see the Canadian side of the business gain momentum in the ROE or what we call the return on equity, continued to go up. Was it cheap in any of the ways you talked about? It wasn't dirt cheap, but I assessed it to be moderately cheap. And my expectation at the time was that it could be a decent long-term holding that provided a return maybe between 10 to 15% per year based on organically growing. So you got very lucky. Definitely. A value investor's typical knee-jerk reaction would be to sell and take gains. And I did rebalance once, uh, but that was more out of risk management reasons. One could have concluded that the stock was priced attractively based on placing a reasonable value on the Canadian segment and adding the injection of cash that was made to start up the U.S. division, which has a different business model called fronting, whereby most of the risks and returns of underwriting are transferred to other parties to lock in a fee that is recurring in nature. Now, if that venture didn't work out, there would have been some downside, and that seemed to be what other portfolio managers I spoke with at the time were uncomfortable with. But here's the thing. Even when I started buying in the summer of 2018, the stock was basically going no bid. Do you know what that means? Nope. I definitely don't know what that means. It means there were no buyers and very little trading in the stock. I remember the first time I bought shares in 2018 and can recall that no shares had traded by noon. And that wasn't the only day I noticed that. The stock obviously hadn't developed a following yet at that point. Now we're talking about a year into trading. And even when I went on BNN at the end of November of that year and pointed it out as a top pick, trading volume at the time was very low uh, from a day-to-day basis. And that obviously has since changed. So what's the catch? Are markets for small caps that inefficient? Well, here's another thing. With such a size difference between the parent company, Brookfield, one would have expected intense selling pressure for a long time, but that didn't seem to happen. Or maybe there was just enough buying to prevent a steep drop in the price at any point. The stock instead traded kind of flat for the first two years while the company continued to grow at a good clip. The disclosure for this company was always good. They print this supplemental each quarter, which gives juicy details, such that one could have seen the U.S. division's progress as it quickly passed the break-even point in profitability. And it wasn't until maybe late 2019 that the stock began to really take off, and I'm surprised how long it took for people to notice. But in the answer to the question of whether small caps trade inefficiently, I think that really depends on the situation. And in this case, we have a company that's not in what people would think of as a high growth, sexy industry. Besides the spin-off dynamics, which were favorable, being in a boring industry can be a blessing for a stock to remain undiscovered for longer than should be the case. I just want you to clarify something. When you say that it's undiscovered, 
does that mean before large companies, large investment companies find it, large banks pick up on it? What does that mean? Glad you asked. Uh, so what I mean undiscovered, that's exactly what I mean. I mean that not that no one knows about it. Obviously, it's a company with hundreds of employees and it's quickly growing. People know about the company, but the investment community, it took them a while to catch on. And by investment community, I mean the portfolio managers, even retail investors, and the brokerage analysts. So now if you look at Trishura, a number of big banks do cover it, but it took a while to ramp up. So I mean that really as a relative term. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in again. If you find this useful, please share our podcast. Uh, We're thanking everyone now for the reviews we've received on Apple Podcasts. So if you have access and you'd like to review it, please do so. It really helps. You can find us on Instagram and you can reach us by email at podcast at starvinecapital.com. Thanks again. Thanks again.